Welcome to Deckert's LIBORcast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the sixth in our LIBORcast series. We're pleased today to have Mike Floods, the Senior Vice President of the Commercial and Multifamily side of the MBA, the side that we care about, who is with us to discuss the LIBOR transition. So thanks, Mike, for joining us, and uh, we hang on your every word. Um, Let's start at the end as opposed to the beginning, because why not? You know, on a scale of Y2K at one end, like who cares, to the world's ending at the other end, um, where does this LIBOR transition rank? Um, we're looking at smooth sailing or we're looking at chaos? Mike, it's just between you and I, so don't worry about the constituencies out there. <laughs> well, uh, Rick, first off, thanks for having us on. Um, it's a great question, and I think everyone is asking that. My personal opinion is it's much more towards the Y2K side than it is the, uh, the end of the world. You know, a couple things stick out to me. One, we've been talking about this for a couple of years, so while change is hard, and I think the greatest analogy I can use for change is hard is Obamacare. At first, we passed Obamacare, and then we kicked everybody out of Congress. Then the Republicans tried to change Obamacare, and we kicked them out of Congress. Um, so I think this is this is change management at its best. And and the reason I say that is we're going to get a good test um, very soon in the fact that the FHFA has pushed the GSEs to offer SOFA function loans, and that's going to start in October. So to your question, I think it's closer to Y2K. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of transition. I think the place to watch is banks, since that's a substantial majority of where loans are made, especially commercial real estate loans. And the one area that I think we're all going to be a little bit more concerned about than most are the smaller banks, which may not be um, as educated or knowledgeable on the issue as the large banks. Yeah, I think that's something we're going to come back to, and particularly the important role that MBA can play in, in, in helping that along. But let's just, you mentioned the GSEs, so let's, let's stick there. Uh, as far as you know, are they on track to start um, making uh, SOFR price loans here in the next several weeks? Yeah, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm looking at their schedule right now, um, and all ARM quotes and applications will be SOFR indexed according to their calendar on October 1st. Um, so I think there's nothing like having a first mover, Rick, and when you have two companies that represent 40 to 50% of the market, I think that's going to be a great test as to how this gets implemented and, and, and what better place than a semi-governmental agency, if you will. Yeah, no, I agree. That that's that's to me the biggest single tell as to whether we're heading for chaos or smooth sailing is is how that progresses. Have you heard, Michael? Because I have not, but I'm just curious. Have you heard about any conventional lenders planning to begin to price their their paper on SOFR at this stage? They're certainly talking about it. But honestly, I think the world, for lack of a better word, maybe I should say the commercial lending world, which is our world. Uh, is watching the GSEs. And I think they're watching to see how the contracts are handled for new issue because it looks like new issues on the table, of course, before fallback language and, and, and legacies, uh, and to see what hiccups may come out of that. And, and that's not a knock on the GSEs. Any first mover is going to have a hiccup here or there. But I, I have a feeling in, in talking to our members that once we see how the process works for the GSEs, um, and a lot of those banks are GSE lenders, let's not forget that, we'll have a good test case and you'll start to see banks move that way after the first mover status has, has kind of smoothed its course. 
Okay, well, your lips to God's ear. I, you were talking about Obamacare. I was thinking about Gerald Ford and his effort to turn us into a metric nation. That worked really well. <laughs> to see which one is closer to the mark. Um, there, there is no country more stubborn than ours. That's yes, sure. exactly, exactly. Hey, you know, and, I, and I, I, I'm generally on your side on that the GSCs will move and that will be a massive inducement for the conventional market to move. But do, do you think there's any chance that LIBOR transition might get delayed? I mean, every, every time they tell me it's not, I feel a little like they're whistling by the graveyard. Any, any chance that this might get pushed? Having been a Washington, D.C. native for now 26 years, you never say never, because uh, this is the only town that I've ever seen that can actually split a baby. Um, but what I would say is uh, the chances are slim. We've been preparing for this as an industry and as regulators for the better part of a year and a half. And if the Fed is going to delay, delaying with three quarters to go before an expected transition seems a little late. So I think the march towards transitioning away from LIBOR is on, and the industry needs to be prepared to continue to move that way. Yeah. How about Ameribor? You know, we continue to hear a lot about um, some enthusiasm about Ameribor, particularly in the small lender marketplace, that it, that it might arguably reflect cost of funds better than SOFR. What are you hearing about that? You know, great question, Rick. We actually, uh, as MBA, have a survey out now to our members. And the question we're really trying to ask is, you know, what, what spread do you really want? But one of the questions that's in that survey is, you know, are you considering the transfer to Ameribor? Now, common knowledge in talking to our members, non-survey knowledge says they're all looking to move towards SOFR. That seems to be where the industry is headed. There's no doubt that people are talking about Ameribor. But again, I'll go back to the GSEs. When you have 40% of one of our 10 asset classes moving to SOFR, I think it will be difficult to see the rest of the market move towards something else. Will there be one-offs? Is it possible that you have local banks and community banks that do that? Absolutely. But I think as far as what we see, A, a delay doesn't seem like it's going to happen, and B, another product outside of SOFR would be a, a tough hill to climb, especially when you have federal regulators and, quite frankly, in my opinion, some, some large banks and the GSEs moving that way. Yeah. And, and not to be a nattering nabob of negativism here, um, give me a, a percentage risk, you think. If you look at you know, late spring of 2022, is there a chance that SOFR might be out there, some form of zombie LIBOR out there because the Brits keep making noise about that possibility and Ameribor out there all being used as pricing indexes in the commercial real estate marketplace? You know, I think it's possible, but it's not probable. And I know that sounds uh, very statistician or, quite frankly, lawyerly, but two things stick out. Think about that from an operational standpoint. Um, unless you're a very large bank with the ability to carry a little bit more cost as far as managing three different rates, I look at it operationally, and I think that'll be difficult. If you're a medium or small-sized bank, I, I would think trying to manage three different rates would be very difficult. Is it possible? Here's where I think that possibility does exist, Rick. Let's say there are some hiccups with the transition, especially when you get to legacy contracts, and maybe in New York hasn't passed the laws that are necessary 
to help with that transition, you might need a legacy LIBOR to hang on until the hiccups get worked out. So in, in, in my scenario, I think LIBOR only hangs on if the transition and some of the issues with the transition take a little longer than expected. Uh, Michael, you, we talked briefly about um, you know small banks, big banks, who's in, who's out. What are you hearing from the members? Are people calling you up on the stray Wednesday and saying, Michael, well, what the hell is this LIBOR transition bullshit? What am I doing here? <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a great question, Rick. I would say if you are one of the top 100 institutions or maybe a better way to say it is 10 billion in CRE assets under management or more, which of course is the substantial majority of lending, those top 100 are very knowledgeable, are very familiar with the issue and are trying to work through it precisely because they belong to the CREFCs, the NMHCs and the MBAs who are deeply involved with the ARC as are their companies. To where I think you're going, the bigger risk is with the smaller community banks that maybe are doing one to three CRE loans, but haven't really paid much attention to this precisely because they don't do a lot of volume. Um, I know in talking to one of the large bank regulators that that has been their number one concern is how do we help these small banks make that transition? Will they do it and do they have the money to do it? So the concentration right now, at least at the federal level that we see, is simply on educating smaller institutions that this is happening and that whether they like it or not, they have to make a transition. Yeah, and how's that education process going at this point? Well, uh, sporadic, uh, much, much kind of like the pandemic. Uh, you, you look for areas to, that pop up. I know that the OCC has gone out of, out of its way to interact with the CREFCs and MBAs of this world to spread the good word. Um, but when you're talking about thousands of small institutions, it's, it's hard to understand how many know precisely um, the consequences of not making the transition. So to your question, I would say in the larger states that have larger economies like a New York and a California, the education's a little bit better. Um, I think in the areas where in the West and maybe some of the South, uh, in the smaller states with smaller economies, the word hasn't been as good, and that's where the concentrated effort is. Yeah. And Michael, unless you want to spend all your time with a, a yellow pad and a number two pencil, we need technology to allow this transition to occur. Uh, presumably, you know, SOFR has to run through the underwriting models, it has to run through credit, has to run through everything else. What are you hearing from the vendors of the, of the technologies, the back office that will support this change? That, that's a great question. A lot of them see a great opportunity here, but maybe I'm mistaken. There's just few and far between when it comes to the service providers who can do this. That said, again, it gets back to large versus small. A large bank can afford those services. When you're a small bank, first, you're just happy you got a delay in Cecil, and you're trying to figure out how to find the money to make that transition. You know, buying a third-party service for a community bank is extraordinarily expensive in comparison to their overall revenue. So again, I, you know, I hate to be a, a repeater here, it's easier with third-party solutions at a larger bank, it's much more difficult with the variety of services available and the pricing for the small banks. Yeah, aren't they going to have to do it though? I mean, if, if you're going to make loans on SOFR, don't you have to underwrite with SOFR? Doesn't your your data system have to 
barf up numbers that are based on, <laughs> on SOFR? And without the back office, the front end's not going to work very well, is it? You know, you hit on the $64,000 question, and that's why, to your point, my original thought was operational. How is this going to work? Yeah. Um, so I, I think no matter what, you have to do it. It's going to be interesting for some of the small institutions as to whether they're doing it with you know, two analysts and a spreadsheet or whether they're actually using systems that they can afford. Yeah. Um, so again, to your point, it's going to be costly. The good news is, like many of these transitions, it's a one-time cost, yeah. right? Once you get a transition over, it's, it's home. But, but again, that's so much easier for the top 100 institutions versus, quite frankly, the, the thousands out there who, who can't afford this and are likely going to have some manual transactions they're going to have to do. Okay. And as you say, after they're done with this, they can deal with Beanie and Cecil. But how about in the, uh, <laughs> right. about in the CMBS arena, you know, where, where we have a handful of masters and a half a hundred specials? Um, is that community ready? Are they, are they able to spread the data through the IRP to investors with the SOFR rate and the SOFR adjustment and all the rest? Sure. I'm going to give two thoughts here. One, CMBS has been hard at work at this for two years, and they have a tremendous champion in Lisa Pendergast at Crusty. She is actually on the arc and has been leading the charge. So I think when I think about the IRP and CMBS, Again, what it comes down to is I think the servicers have the tough job of waiting on the lenders to make decisions. So to your point, there's a process here. Um, one is bank or lender must make decision on SOFR and how to do it. Then special servicer, master servicer, you know, in my words, are tied to their contractual obligation. So they have to read that contract that was made in CMBS and implement it. So I think it's a little difficult to ask the question as to whether the services are ready. I think as servicers have done for, for hundreds of years, um, they've gotten loans at the last minute, processed them, and made sure securitization went out the door. So I have every confidence that masters and specials can. I think there is a little bit of anxiety about when will lenders make decisions. I think, again, what is going to happen that will be extraordinarily helpful for CMBS masters and specials is many of them are also agency servicers. So they're going to get a look at the GSE contracts. They're going to implement the GSE contracts, and that will give them lessons learned and efficiencies that they can use when CMBS transitions over. That's a really long-winded answer to your question. I no, think the answer is they're waiting on the lenders. They're tied to their contracts but they'll have lesson learned from the GSEs when it comes time to transition over in the private sector. Yeah, I think that's a great point. They're going to be able to, as they say in golf, go to school on that putt before they have to do it in the <laughs> marketplace. Um, that's why you don't want me working at a servicer. I can look at a putt all day, but I'm going to miss it. <laughs> I don't even know what a, which end of the putter to hold, so we're in the same boat there. <laughs> Let's get into the weeds a little bit on one issue that I've, I've heard about, and I'm not good enough at math to figure it out, but... You know, it looks like, well, the ARC prefers calculating SOFR in arrears. Our market is heading towards calculating SOFR in advance because, you know, we're just kind of yep. are boggled by the notion of, of telling a borrower that we'll figure out his interest cost after the accrual period is over. Um, what are you hearing about how lenders are dealing with that price impact on using last month's interest rate to price next month's money? I, I've heard that... <laughs> 
that even some major lenders are saying it's it's a problem yet without a solution. We're hearing the same, and that precise question is why we have a survey out right now, and it's asking the question that you asked, which one do you prefer, and, and what are your thoughts on how to do it? And then we plan to share that with the regulators and share that with the community. Um, unfortunately, answers are due today, so I don't have that for you, yeah. uh, but we should in the next couple of weeks. But you hit on the precise question that's in our survey. What's the right way to do this? How do you want to do it? And what's in your way from doing it? Um, and, and once we have that, I think we can bring that to the community and, and see how we resolve those problems. Okay. Well, you know, I hope that works out well. That, that seems to be a, the, <laughs> the, the problem of the failure of SOFR to contain a credit-sensitive component has been known to everyone since the get-go, and that can has been, been kicked down the road for the past three years. So maybe we'll, uh, we're getting closer to a solution. Um, well, remember, I'm in Washington, D.C., and, and we love to solve things at the 11th hour, Rick. Yeah, you do. It. It's, it's, not, it's only the 10th and a half. I mean, the, it's interesting. The pandemic has absorbed everyone's bandwidth for the past seven months. So, you know, any progress made in, in, on the LIBOR transition has been sort of cauterized until probably now. So uh, with only 15 months to go, we're getting close to that 11th hour. Hey, listen, we've talked yeah. about how everybody else is ready, and, you know, you can't clap with one hand, and there's one constituency we haven't talked about. How are our borrowers doing here? How, is What's the level of education in the borrower community? I think it scares a lot of people. Um, when it comes to, again, I'm going to go back to our test case. The best test case out there are the, are the seller servicers at the agencies. They're very aware. Um, they're making the transition. And I think Fannie and Freddie and those DUS lenders, are going to get a heck of a lot of feedback from their borrowers in the next three months. Um, so I think, again, I hate to go from the large to the small. When I think of the large borrowers, they're extraordinarily aware. Um, they have pretty good negotiation power with their lenders, you can tell me, Rick. And I think the large ones, again, will be the easiest ones to, to, to figure out. Um, easy, I say, in, in a difficult process. It's the small mom and pop shops that I think are going to be a little surprised. And you can educate to the best of your ability, but sooner or later somebody has to actually pick up the newspaper and decide to read it. Yeah, sure. um, yeah. So I hate to say this, if I do the math and I think about large borrowers, again, it tells me on the Pareto chart of life that 80% of the borrowers in the significant areas like New York and California are very aware and know this is going to happen. Um, they don't know when, but they know it's going to happen. It's the 20% of the borrowers that have one or two buildings or a couple loans that I don't think are aware um, and may have some surprises as they roll into the new year. And you know, it's funny. It's not the new borrower, the new money transaction that gives me the twitches. It's, you know, it, you know, pretty much everyone goes to the GSE says, hey, I don't care what you ask me to do. You're giving me fantastic money. Thank you very much. Um, right. I'm a little more worried about so the legacy book. You know, I was I was taught years ago. Whenever you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. And we are continuing to dig because we're continuing to make LIBOR-based loans with either either term or optional term, well through 2022. Um, that's the marketplace of borrowers that I worry about because the transition mechanics in those deals are variable to say the least. What do you hear about that? I, I think that could be a problem. 
I completely agree. Those two years are going to be the biggest difficulty. This is where I think that the Fed needs to step in. Um, and this is where I think they can help the lender community, you know, by giving some sort of CYA that the Fed is, is pushing the transition from LIBOR to SOFR, and this is something that has to be done. And my point in saying that is, you tell me, Rick, but when you get the cover of the government, that makes making those transitions and agreements that are already in contracts that much easier. I hate to be this way, but I think without some form of cover from the Fed or a national regulator, there will be some inevitable lawsuits in those two years um, where LIBOR loans were made. Um, just trying to be realistic. Okay. Hey, I got, I got two more questions for you. I only have time for one. So the next one is yes or no. Do you think the election matters? Yes. Oh, geez, I was hoping you go with no. <laughs> uh, uh, LIBOR transition, no. I okay. think that continues moving forward. And, and let me give you a political answer. If I'm a President Biden, go with me for a minute, and typically a Democratic Party is a little bit leery of banks, and years ago I decried the problems with LIBOR as a senator, then it would be very difficult for me as president to stand back and say, let's slow this train down. Gotcha. Um, and, and that's a political answer, I know. If I am President Trump, and over the last four years, my administration has been pushing this, I think it will be very difficult to slow down a train and say, yeah, I'm the president, but I trust two guys in a Bloomberg to create a rate, because that's the line that will come against them um, if I'm a Democrat. Um, so I think for either president, it would be difficult to slow this train down. Um, so in that specific incidence, the answer is no, the presidency does not matter. Excellent. Okay, I was hoping for that answer. Hey, listen, I got one last hardball question for you, and then we'll close up. So like, you and the NBA are the leading voice in much of the commercial real estate finance space oh. and, and across both commercial and residential. Uh, what's the plan? What are you doing between now and the time that uh, we throw the switch on LIBOR as an institution to help LIBOR transition? You know, a great question, Rick, and, and appreciate the opening. You know, we have about six things going on. One, we have our own MBA LIBOR transition website, and it has resources for both single-family and residential. As our, our residential team sits on the consumer portion of the arc, two, um, we have numerous papers on why are we transitioning from LIBOR to one you wrote, you helped us write, which lists about ten questions of how do you prepare. How do you make sure that you're in the right space to, to make the transition to LIBOR? And we have a LIBOR awareness task force led by Rena Pally over at MetLife. And so when we have that kind of horsepower, that allows us on a monthly basis to host meetings with our members, again, run a survey to see where people's heads are at, and report back from the ARC on what is happening, how is it happening, and what are the top three things you need to worry about this month. And, you know, I have a great lieutenant in Andrew Foster who's leading this for us. So every month we meet and every month we try to bring in regulators to talk about those issues and make our members aware. Um, so our big focus is on awareness. Our big focus is on trying to push the legislation in New York. And our big focus is on, you know, hopefully discussing reasonable accommodations from the Fed when we run into hiccups in the transition. Super duper. Well, keep it up. And I would urge our 
listeners here to tune into the MBA because it is a source of a lot of fantastic and useful information in these uh, somewhat daunting times. But listen, Michael, thank you for sharing your insights with uh, our listeners. I'm sure they all appreciate it. Please tune in to our live broadcast series, which can be found on our website as well as YouTube. We're going to continue to cover a variety of topics with various regulatory and industry participants on this important topic. And maybe, Michael, we'll have you back on to uh, uh, tell us more as we get a little closer to the ultimate announcement here. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Michael, for participating. Bye-bye now.